0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with ARENA Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of ARENA Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host Nicole Engelbrecht and this is episode 30, the murder of Talib Peterson. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our newest Patreon supporter. A huge thank you goes out to Julia Phillips for her commitment to supporting the show on Patreon. Any support through Patreon or PayPal goes a really long way to helping the podcast grow and improve, so I'm hugely thankful for your contribution. If you'd like to support the show on either of these platforms, I will include the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on our social media platforms all play a major role in the growth of the podcast. In the spirit of growing and sharing, it's been a while since I've used this platform to share promos for other true crime podcasts, and I want to start doing that again because not only does it help other podcasts to grow, but it also helps listeners to find new awesome content. One of the things that really resonates with me about true crime podcasting is that there's no such thing as the competition. We're all in this to bring a voice to the victims, and as such, we all support each other and help where we can. Obviously, as with any other arena, You'll find true crime podcasters who are not in this for the right reasons, but they're pretty easy to spot, and you won't find me promoting any of them on here. All of the true crime podcasts I promote are independent podcasters like me, who do this to tell the stories of victims of violent crime across the world. The promo I'm playing today is by the true crime podcast, Murder and More the host, Kira, is definitely one of the good guys, and she works hard to produce interesting and well-researched content. Here's Kira with her promo. Hi guys, Kira from Murder and More here. I am the solo host of the UK-based true crime podcast, where each Sunday I tell you about a murder, disappearance or serial killer. Murder and More is available to listen to wherever you get your podcasts, including platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox and Stitcher. You can find us on Twitter and Tumblr at Murder and More, Instagram at Murder and More Pod, and on Facebook at Murder and More Podcast. Head over to murderandmorepodcast.wordpress.com to find out more. I chose this case to cover today because it puts a different slant on the scourge of domestic violence, and it puts the focus on something that, in my opinion, doesn't get near enough attention. While women are predominantly the victims of domestic violence, men are very often also victims. Domestic violence against men is hardly ever spoken about, though, for many reasons. Our society has difficulty accepting that a man can be a victim of domestic violence, simply because we see men as stronger than women. Just like rape is not about sex. Domestic violence is not about brute strength. It is about power, dominance and control. Abuse doesn't start with a slap or a punch, and often it doesn't even get to that point. People don't stay in abusive relationships because they're being physically held there. They stay because they've been so significantly controlled that they feel helpless to make a change. And in that context, men are no different to women. Domestic violence and abuse against men by their partners is absolutely real. But because there's still such a stigma around it, victims don't come forward. The fact that the victim in this case was a public figure also helps us to realise that this can happen to anyone. This case presents as a murder for hire due to greed, but honestly, I think it goes much deeper than that. The resources I used to research this episode include the chapter on this case in Blood on Her Hands by Tanya Faber, as well as four court documents which related to the case. There are a lot of role players in this case, and I'll do my best as I go along To remind you of who is who. So without further ado, let's get into Episode thirty. The murder of Talib Peterson. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, Please see the helpline information on our show notes. Abdul Mutalib Peterson, known as Talib, was born on the fifteenth of april nineteen fifty in Cape Town. His talent for music was recognized at a young age, and he performed in public for the first time at the age of six at the Cape Town Carnival. At twenty four, he started his theatrical career by appearing in musicals including Hair, Godspell, and Jesus Christ Superstar. After studying classical guitar in the UK for a time, Talib wrote his first musical, Carnival a la District 6, which was no doubt inspired by his first public performance as a child. In the 1980s, he formed a band called Sapphire which played interpretations of traditional Cape Malay songs. By 1986, he had partnered up with another big name in theatre, David Cramer, and they would go on to create and produce several critically acclaimed musicals, which appeared not just in South Africa, but also on New York's Broadway and London's West End. In 1987, a young lady auditioned for a role in District 6 and caught Talib's eye. He and Madika Anas would be in a relationship for a decade before they eventually married. Madika converted to Islam, which was Talib's religion, and they would go on to have four children together, daughters Jawahir, Aisha and Fatima, and a son, Asha. In the mid-90s, Talip's marriage to Madiha hit a rocky patch and a friend of hers that would often come around to the house to spend time with Madiqa suddenly started coming around when she wasn't there and Talip was alone. Her friend's name was Najwa Dirk. The woman who had recently come out of her second marriage belonged to a very wealthy family of fruit distributors. Rumour would later have it that fruit wasn't the only thing that the Dirk family was distributing. Najwa had two sons from a previous marriage, and it didn't take long for her to woo Talib. By 1997, Talib and Madika were divorced, and he moved into a house in Athlone, which was owned by Najwa's family. The couple would share custody of their children with little contact other than co-parenting duties for many years. Taleb's children with Madiha would live at the house with him and Najwa for two weeks of the month, and then spend the other two weeks of the month with their mother. As they grew older, this arrangement became more flexible, and they stayed where they wished. Najwa's two sons also lived with the couple, and her cousin lived in a flatlet on the property. Although things were not always easy for the blended family, it seemed that Talip was satisfied with his choice, for a time. It would later emerge that the strange dynamic between the pair had started early on. They ended up getting married three times twice in traditional religious ceremonies and once in a legal ceremony. For two of the ceremonies, none of Talip's family were invited to attend. Talip was an intensely private man, and much of what he had to deal with in his relationship remained a secret until after his death. Najwa refused to take on Talib's surname, although legal documents have her named as Peterson for her own purposes when she introduced herself and for business deals, she was Najwa Dirk. In 1999, Najwa and Talip welcomed a daughter together who they named Zainab. Talip was overjoyed by his newest addition and doted on the child, as did the rest of the family and her older siblings. Najwa's behaviour had become highly unpredictable and she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. She also suffered from depression and was booked into several psychiatric hospitals for weeks at a time. In 2003, Najwa attempted to commit suicide by swallowing all of her medication at one time. From that day, Talip helped her with her medication by keeping it locked away and dispensing it as required when he was out of the country for business, the task would fall to one of the older children. Najwa's mental health struggles and her unpredictable behaviour created difficulties in the marriage and In two thousand and five, Talip reconnected with his ex-wife, and they began to call and message each other on occasion in early two thousand and six. Najwa was booked back into a psychiatric facility for treatment as she'd fallen back into a deep pit of depression. She was discharged on the 13th of April 2006. That night, Talip's daughter, Jawir, came home and as she walked past Najwa and Talip's room, she found her stepmother sitting on the bed while her father was in the shower. She paused and chatted to Najwa for a while. They discussed Talib's upcoming birthday, and Najwa seemed absolutely fine. She didn't look drugged, and behaved quite normally. The young lady headed off to bed, and the household settled in for the night. Within an hour, Jawir heard a soft knock at her bedroom door, and her younger sister entered. She told her that their father was calling for help. And she didn't know what to do. The older girl approached the bedroom door and listened. She could hear her father saying, No, Najwa, no. She knocked and then opened the door. The room was dark except for the blue glow of the television, and she called out to her father, asking if everything was okay. He responded in a small voice that she should switch the light on but she shouldn't freak out when she did. Unfortunately, she couldn't keep that promise. As the minute the light flooded the room, a horrific scene revealed itself to the girl. Her stepmother was kneeling on the floor. She had a knife in her hand, and Salip was doing his best to hold her back. His chest was covered in blood. It also lined the blinds and duvet. Jahir said that Najwa's expression was the most horrifying part of the whole scene. She had never seen her stepmother look like that before. She described it as almost demonic. By then, much of the household had gathered around the scene, and Talip handed the knife to the family's living domestic worker, asking her to please wash it carefully and pack it away. Talip then arranged for Najwa to return to the psychiatric hospital for another three weeks, and he was taken for urgent medical care for his stab wounds. The incident was never reported to the police, but when Najwa returned from the psychiatric facility, things were very different in the home. Talip's children no longer wanted to sleep overnight at their house, and if they did, they locked their doors. Every bedroom door in the household was locked at night from that point. Talib moved into a separate bedroom, where he would sleep with their youngest daughter, Zainab, behind a locked door, and Najwa stayed in the main bedroom. Najwa would later say that the change of sleeping arrangements was due to her smoking habits, which bothered Talib but we know that this is not the case. It is difficult to understand why Talib would have protected Najwa in this situation and not left her, and I think that the answer to that question is much more complex than we can understand. I'm sure he didn't want to send his wife and the mother of his child to jail, but why would he not leave her? It is this choice and some revelations about Taleb's financial situation which would come out later that make me think that there was a significant amount of control and abuse going on in this relationship. Just as women are known to return to physically abusive partners and avoid reporting them to police, Taleb continued to live with Najwa. His children were not happy though and tension built in the home. Najwa was a well-off woman. She received about a 100,000 rand in her bank accounts each month, as proceeds from her family's fruit business, shares that she owned in a property business, and the sale of diamonds that she regularly arranged. She also illegally sold US dollars for profit, it would emerge that Talib didn't have any money of his own. He had a bank account, but the only money that was in it was what Najwa transferred into the account to run debit orders for his life insurance policies. Any money that came from his appearances or musicals was transferred directly into Najwa's account. David Cramer would later confirm that this was the arrangement. Talip Peterson actually didn't own anything. His ex-wife had taken their home in that divorce, and the house he lived in with Najwa belonged to a member of the Dirk family. So even if he divorced her, he wouldn't be able to claim half the value of that home. I guess he probably could have proven that his musical revenue had been paid over to Najwa but that would probably have been quite a process. Najwa had also claimed that she was investing his money for him. He had several life insurance policies in his name, including a few for his children from his first marriage. The most significant policy, though, was taken out in the year preceding his death, and it was valued at 5.3 million rand there was one sole beneficiary of that policy, Zainab Peterson, his seven-year-old daughter. His will confirmed that the money would be managed by her mother, Najwa, until Zainab came of age. During the school year, Najwa was at her daughter's school when she realized that an old acquaintance also had a child that attended the same school. Fahim Hendricks, had known Najwa for at least 20 years. His brother had worked for Dirk Fruit, and Fahim was also still friends with one of Najwa's ex-husbands. Fahim Hendricks was on a different class level to Najwa, and she knew it. The man had tried many ways to make money in the past, and his most recent plan was a small takeaway business that he planned to set up. His only problem was that he needed 10,000 Rand for stock. So he approached the person that he knew could help him, Najwa Dirk. It would emerge that this wasn't the first time that Najwa had loaned Fahim money. In the beginning of the school year when they'd first reconnected, she'd loaned him 20,000 Rand. As security, she'd kept his vehicle. When he paid back the money, he got his vehicle back. When he approached her for a loan in November of 2006, though, Najwa wanted something else as collateral. She wanted him to kill someone for her, or arrange someone to do it. Initially, Fahim alleges that he refused, but over the days that followed, Najwa phoned him relentlessly, and he eventually agreed. The deal was that he would be given a 100,000 Rand to split among however many accomplices he needed to get the job done. He claims that he was not initially told who the target would be. Fahim immediately approached a person who, he figured, would have contacts of the hitman variety. 34-year-old Abdur Enji had just been released from jail and he was living with Fahim and his wife. Abdur said that he knew three young men that lived in Hanover Park who would have no problem doing the deed for a cut of the cash. Fahim had been quiet for a few days, and Najwa was growing impatient, so she sent a friend that lived nearby to visit Fahim's house and ask for his telephone number. The friend complied, and Najwa was soon on the phone to Fahim, demanding to know what was happening. He and Abdul visited her house in Athlone later that day, and it was at this time that Fahim says that the target was identified for the first time. Najwa wanted her husband, Talib Peterson, murdered. She claimed that Talib was planning on divorcing her, and as they were married in community of property, he would get half of all her assets, and she wasn't having that. Najwa wanted the murder to look like a robbery or hijacking gone wrong. She said that she would have 30,000 rand available on the scene, which they could take as a deposit when they killed Talib, and when his policies paid out, she would give them the rest. Talib was in London at the time, setting up for the start of his latest musical, and he was due to return to South Africa on the thirteenth of December. The initial plan was that Najwa would collect Talib from the airport, and the hitmen would fake a hijacking on their way home and shoot Talib dead. On the thirteenth of December, however, Najwa called for him from the airport to tell him that Taleb's plane had been delayed. He responded that he couldn't get hold of the three young men who were supposed to do the job anyway. Later on, when he eventually managed to speak to one of the men, they said that they couldn't make it because they didn't have any transport. So these were really high-level guys. Anyway, on the 14th of December... Talib was due to live out one of his life dreams. He was going to perform with his 14-year-old son, Asher. The father and son duet had been planned for a long time, so it irked Talib when his wife said that she would be arriving late as she was feeling ill. In reality, Najwa wasn't ill at all. She saw another opportunity to act out her plan. She phoned for him, and told him to arrange the hitmen to wait outside the theatre, and when Talib exited after his performance, they should kill him. So, essentially, Najwa had no problem with the fact that 14-year-old Asher would watch his father get gunned down, nor that he too would be in harm's way. Thankfully. Najwa's really professional gang of hitmen were also unable to get themselves together in time for this attempt, and Taleb Peterson was able to perform with his son, and he was completely unaware that he'd been given just two days' reprieve. On Saturday the 16th of December 2006, Najwa's twin nieces were celebrating their birthday, and a large party was being held to celebrate the event. Najwa, Talip, and all of their children were invited, but unfortunately, Najwa was feeling ill again, and she decided not to attend. Talip and several of the children attended, and likely still tired from his overseas trip, Talip returned home at about 10 p.m., he found Najwa laying on one of the children's beds upstairs, and they sat together and prayed for healing for her. This prayer was witnessed by Najwa's daughter-in-law, who returned home from the party with her husband, Najwa's son, and their newborn baby. The woman recalled hearing the couple's prayer echoing through the house as she'd entered. They'd tiptoed past the room, and settled themselves and the baby into their own bedroom. Their prayer completed. Talip had invited Najwa's cousin inside for tea and birthday cake, and they'd sat around the kitchen table, chatting for about an hour. At some stage, Najwa had joined them. She'd also had some cake and tea, and then told the men that she was going to turn in for the night. She went upstairs and drew a bath, placing candles around it. She then listened as Talib came upstairs and settled into his room to watch television. She knew him well enough that she'd known he would either be watching television in his room or he would be in his studio, and that is exactly what she told for him to tell the men that were on their way. Earlier that day, Fahim and Abdul had thrown out the plan to use the three Hanover Park men and instead procured the services of Walid Hassan. Walid and one of his employees, Jefferson Snyders, had driven to Taleb's home and scoped out the street and the entry points in preparation. They'd been told that the front door would be left slightly ajar the security gate would be unlocked and the alarm system would be disarmed. The security cameras on that side of the house would also not be working. Indeed, as Talib went upstairs, he did not arm the alarm. The standing rule in the house was that the last person in would arm the system and Najwa's other son was not home from the party yet. Najwa made a final call to Fahim at 11.30pm. At around 11.40pm, two masked men burst into the room in which Talib was watching television. Walid Hassan had a gun and his accomplice, Jefferson Snyders, had cable ties. It's alleged that Jefferson had no idea that the robbery was supposed to end in murder. He claims that he was not told that anyone in the house would die that night. Within minutes, Talip had his hands cable tied and he was pushed to the ground. Walid told him that they were there to rob the house. Najwa entered the room at that point and Talip seemed to already know that she was involved even though she was still trying to act like a victim. She tried to hug Talip and he head-butted her away. Walid responded by punching Talip in the face, so hard that he flew backwards and blood sprayed out of his nose and mouth. If there was ever any doubt who the men were working for at that point, it was destroyed by that punch. In a bizarre display of misplaced affection, Najwa sat on the floor next to Talip and kissed his head. She spoke to him softly as he cried. Jefferson felt that Talib was moving around too much, so they decided to tie him up with a tablecloth. Walid held him still, while Jefferson and Najwa tied his feet. Walid then told her to take him to the safe. Inside, she had a pre prepared bag containing 27,000 rand. Walid wanted to steal other items from the safe, to make it look like a real robbery, but Dajwa wasn't willing to part with any more, and instead she gave him her watch. He asked if there was anyone else in the house, and she told him that her son, his wife, and their newborn baby were in their room. Walid followed her there, and she knocked to get them to unlock the door and Walid then burst in Najwa started sobbing and behaving hysterically Walid stole about 2000 rand from the couple as well as a camera that was in the room In a heart-stopping moment Walid paused gun in hand but not pointed anywhere specific over the newborn baby's crib He then bent down and kissed the child on the forehead. Locking the couple and the baby in the room, Walid and Najwa proceeded back to where Talip was tied up. Jefferson, who had been left to care for the man, had shoved a glove in his mouth, presumably to stop him talking or screaming, but bizarrely he was also wiping away Talip's tears and the blood that streamed down his face. On the way back to the room, Najwa told Walid that he had gotten what he had come for, and now he had to finish the job. Walid went into a nearby room and retrieved a pillow. He told Jefferson to go and act as a lookout outside. The man who had presumably just realized that a murder was about to be committed was all too happy to leave. Walid folded the pillow in half and inserted the gun into the fold. He pointed it at Talib, who, having had the glove removed from his mouth, was now rocking back and forth, repeating an Islamic prayer. Walid would later say that he hesitated to pull the trigger, and Najwa had placed her hand inside the pillow on his hand, and then a single round went off. This testimony is to be taken with a pinch of salt, because Walid is a career criminal who was trying to minimise his role in a brutal murder. He claims, though, that he's not sure if he pulled the trigger, or if Najwa did. Tali Peterson died almost instantly, a small mercy considering the terror he would have endured in the minutes before his death. His final thoughts would likely have been of the treacherous woman who stood before him, who tried to take his life once already, and on her second attempt, was about to succeed. He would likely have also been filled with fear for the safety of his seven-year-old daughter, who lay sleeping in the room next door. At that point, he would have had no idea how far Najwa would go. As her husband lay dead on the floor, Najwa Dirk had the men lock her in the room with little Zainab, who was about to wake up to a world forever changed. Najwa gave Walid and Jefferson time to escape, and then phoned several of her own family members, telling them to come quickly, as they'd been robbed, and she'd heard a gunshot. The next half an hour is a muddle of family members phoning other family members. At some stage, someone thought to phone Talib's younger brother, who lived very close to the Athlone home. He would be the first to arrive on the scene with his son. He found his brother's dead body on the floor, and the pair proceeded to break down the two-bedroom doors behind which the occupants had been locked. A shaking and sobbing Najwa Dirk was administered a sedative by her family doctor before the detective arrived to take a statement from her. As per Islamic burial requirements, Talib Peterson was laid to rest within 24 hours of his murder. On the day of his burial, Najwa Dirk was visited by Fahim Hendricks at her home. Initially, he was refused entry, as during her traditional mourning period, A Muslim woman is not allowed to see men who are not members of her family. The same friend of Najwa's who had gone to get Fahim's telephone number had been at the house that day and recognised Fahim and tried to turn him away. Najwa, though, had intervened, saying that she had to see him about money that he owed her. Money exchanged hands that day, but it wasn't from Fahim to Najwa. As her husband was just interred, Najwa paid the second instalment for his murder, 40,000 rand. Salip's younger brother would later say that he had a very bad feeling on the night that his brother had died. He hadn't liked the way the Dirk family was behaving that night, and he felt in his gut that the incident had not simply been a robbery gone wrong. Six months would go by, though, before the truth would start to come to light. As the world mourned one of the brightest stars of South African theatre, the police were under pressure to solve this high-profile crime. It's unknown exactly when police had enough evidence to turn the tide, but it would emerge that Najwa had made a critical mistake in the hours after the murder. The responding officer had noted that she still had two cell phones in her possession after the robbery, one of which she had used to call her family. This was strange because the other victims in the house had been robbed of their cell phones. The officer asked Najwa for her cell phones as evidence, and she hesitated. She asked if she could just quickly take down a few numbers so that she could call people about Taleb's passing. The officer allowed it, and during this time she attempted to delete Fahim Hendricks' cell phone number from her phone. Of course, they were still able to retrieve all of her call records, which meant that she couldn't hide the fact that she'd phoned Fahim 51 times in the space of five days, before and after her husband's murder. When Fahim was questioned about this, he staved police off for a while by telling them that he and Najwa were in a relationship. The police knew that this would likely not be the case, though, and before long they started to put pressure on Fahim. Identifying him as the weakest link, they arrested him for being in possession of an unlicensed firearm. When he was released on bail, He spoke to an attorney and mentioned that he may have information about Talip Peterson's murder. The attorney told him to either come clean to the police or make sure that he had at least 20,000 Rand for bail if he was arrested on that charge. Fahim made contact with Najwa and she arranged for him to collect 20,000 Rand from her father's house to ensure that if he was arrested, he spent as little time as possible under police scrutiny. In the end, Fahim decided to spill the beans, and in June 2007, six months after Talip's murder, he confessed to police, receiving immunity from prosecution, and he was placed into witness protection. Within days... Najwa Dirk, Walid Hassan, Abdur MG, and Jefferson Snyders were arrested and charged with the murder of Talib Peterson as well as four other charges related to the robbery and the firearm used in the crime. All parties pleaded not guilty to the charges before them. The trial against the accused was delayed on several occasions as Najwa Dirk, moved through four different sets of counsel before finally settling on one. Her defence was that her family had indeed been a victim of robbery that night, and that Fahim must have arranged it because he knew that she had money. As for the stabbing incident earlier that year, Najwa said that she conceded that it must have happened because people told her that it had, but she had no memory of the incident. She explained the numerous telephone calls to Fahim by saying that she was calling to remind him to pay her back the loan, because in her words, money is very important to me. Several witnesses testified that they had also taken loans from Najwa, and she had never called them to remind them about their payments, and certainly not 51 times in 5 days. During the course of Najwa's trial, her father had a heart attack and then passed away in a car accident, and her mother suffered a stroke. In passing sentence on Najwa, the judge stated that although she had tried to present an image of a meek and mentally unstable woman, the evidence before him told a very different story. In his opinion he felt that Najwa held a great amount of sway in her relationship. She had made herself financially superior and controlled the finances within the relationship. Interestingly, psychologists that assessed Najwa could not agree on a diagnosis of bipolar disorder for her and felt that she may have been misdiagnosed. The judge referred to this in his sentencing and said that this lingering undiagnosed and seemingly untreatable mental health condition was used by Najwa to manipulate Talib. Najwa Dirk was found guilty and sentenced to 28 years in prison. Walid Hassan and Abdur Emji were sentenced to 24 years in prison. Jefferson Snyder's was sentenced to 10 years in prison. I did some social media digging, and I was happy to see that Talib's children seem to be doing very well. Zainab has grown into a beautiful young woman, and she seems to have a strong relationship with her siblings. She still occasionally posts in remembrance of the day her father was taken from her, expressing her sadness that he's no longer with her, and remembering the great father that he was. I have no idea whether she still has any contact with her mother. To be honest, I don't know that that would be an easy decision to make. She already lost her father, and then she essentially lost her mother too. The performing arts community, and the citizens of Cape Town, South Africa, and the world, deeply mourn the loss of Talib Peterson. The former Premier of the Western Cape said that Talib managed to, quote, capture our entire history, express our deepest pain, articulate our joy, and demonstrate our humanity through music and drama. End quote. The circumstances that brought Talib to the end of his life could well have been straight out of a dramatic production. A scheming, murderous wife hires several initially bumbling and eventually deadly hitmen to kill her husband, presumably out of greed. That last bit might not be the entire story, though, in my opinion. As the judge alluded to in his judgment, There was a significant amount of control and manipulation in this relationship. I think that from the moment Najwa laid eyes on Tilly Peterson, she decided that she wanted to possess him. This larger-than-life personality and talent had attracted her interest, and despite him being the husband of a good friend, she set her eyes on making him hers two marriages in, she was looking for a third man to control, and Talip must have seemed like the ideal specimen. I'm not for a moment excusing the fact that Talip was as complicit in the formation of this relationship as Najwa was, but I do think that her intentions were very different from his. Najwa was used to being special. Her family had a lot of money and I'm sure that it was normal for her to be held in high regard because of this. She didn't need money, but she did need a man to dominate and manipulate. The fact that she started so early on with her financial control tactics spells trouble in my opinion. It would be easy to say that maybe that's the way Talib wanted it, but many of his family members said that he told them that his financial isolation was very concerning to him, we will never know why he chose to stay after her initial physical attack on him. We will also never know whether she really intended to kill him that night or if it was just another part of her manipulation. Was she building fear in Talib, showing him who was boss, so that when the moment came and that gun was held to his head, he would know who had really pulled the trigger, whether literally or figuratively. Many may struggle to see this case as a form of domestic violence, but I do. Domestic violence is damaging, alienating and horrifying, and it happens to both genders. We can no longer close our eyes to the fact that women are equally capable of being abusers against their domestic partners, and that many, many men are suffering in silence at this very moment. Najwa Dirk likely thought that she was very clever. Her entire life she'd managed to buy her way into whatever she wanted, and when she was finished toying with Talib, or perhaps even when he was getting ready to leave her, she decided that that wasn't going to happen. I think that the sentence handed down to her was just, but as the judge said, no sentence handed down will ever bring back the bright light that was Talip Peterson. Many of Talip's children have inherited his talent, and they continue to sing and have careers in music. Both Asher and Fatima are talented musicians and I have no doubt that every time they sing, their father's memory is reignited for a moment in time. Thank you for listening to episode 30 the murder of Talib Peterson. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on the app that you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with more South African true crime content. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.